Morning. So my best friend in high school was Jim. High school, right through college, best friends. Jim was a little ahead of me in the uh, uh, career track. He got ordained uh, in a Southern Baptist church uh, long before I even considered becoming a pastor. And interestingly, and having nothing to do with anything I'm going to say this morning, but I want to share it anyway, uh, the Baptist church that ordained him, Fern Creek Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, was one of three or four churches that the Southern Baptist Convention just kicked out, along with Rick Warren's Saddleback, uh, because they had a female pastor. So I say, way to go, uh, Fern Creek Baptist Church. While I was in seminary at North Park, Jim was serving as a youth pastor in the Chicagoland area. And one day he told me the story of a man that had come to the church, knocked on the door, and was requesting help, likely money of some kind. And the senior pastor, Jim's boss, turned him away. And Jim said to his boss, you know who that was, don't you? And he said, no, who was it? And Jim said, it was Jesus. And with that, the senior pastor chuckled uncomfortably and walked back into his office. I have never forgotten that story. I think of that story every time we read the passage that we read earlier from Matthew 25. I think of that story every time I'm walking down the street and I see someone there and I know, oh, they're going to ask me for money. Every single time. And yet, I fail very often to handle it very well. Since the beginning of my sabbatical in May of 2021, Kim and I have been very slowly engaging in the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola. I've mentioned him before. Ignatius was a Spanish soldier who was wounded by the French in a battle in 1521. And as he was recovering from three surgeries in a time when they did not have anesthesia, a cannonball had shattered his leg. He recovered in isolation and he was bored and had nothing to do. And he only had two books there that he could read. One was The Life of Christ and the other one was a book on the lives of the saints. And he read these books over and over and they led him to faith in Christ and they led him to begin to develop practices and prayers that eventually became what we call his spiritual exercises. He also founded the Society of Jesus or more properly known uh, as the Jesuits. The spiritual exercises are prayerful, imaginative reading and meditating on scripture, specifically on the life of Christ in the Gospels. And each week, as Kim and I are slowly working our way through the Ignatian spiritual exercises, we are invited to pray a prayer for the graces of that week. There are 32 weeks in the spiritual exercises. Kim and I have just finished week 17. Do the math. We've done 17 weeks in two years. Slowly, intentionally. Here's the prayer for week 17. I pray for the following graces an awareness of the enemy's deceits and courage in the face of them, an understanding of Christ's way of living and a desire to live that way. That week we were invited to imagine a cosmic war between Satan and Christ. And it was, that, that, that exercise was called a meditation on two standards or two banners. Think of the banners that armies would carry into battle as they faced one another raised up over two competing camps on the battlefield, the battle of Christ and the, I mean, the banner of Christ and the banner of Satan, the banner of light and the banner of darkness. We were asked to picture the enemy, Satan, sending demons around the world to accomplish, to influence, to accomplish his deeds, to influence Christians and others to, to go the wrong way, to live the wrong way. We were to choose a side. There is no middle ground. 
And one of the questions asked in this exercise was, I mean, assuming that all of us are engaged in the exercise, we know Christ. It's not that we're afraid of losing our salvation. It is whether or not there are places we have been deceived in our lives into thinking and living a way that is contrary to the way of Christ and his kingdom. Where had the enemy gained a foothold in my life? And the scene, as I said, Ignatius wanted us to picture was cosmic and fantastic. And frankly, not too easy for me to picture and imagine, which may be a surprise given the movies I watch sometimes, but it was very difficult for me to picture this. So rather than see that, my mind went almost immediately to Matthew 25, which also has some cosmic elements to it if you read it carefully. The passage we just read. Our, our passage comes at the end of a longer section of teaching, a series of passages dealing with a question that the disciples asked Jesus in chapter 24. Right after Jesus had predicted the destruction of the temple, uh, they wanted to know, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So Jesus then begins to teach them about things to come. And some of what he teaches them through chapters 24 and 25 sounds like it's a it's concerning the immediate future or not, not too far in the future. And other parts of it seem as if Jesus is talking about the end of the age, way off in the future somewhere. In chapter 25, Jesus uses several parables to warn his followers and Matthew's readers of things yet to come and to be prepared. After two longer parables, verse 31, Jesus begins to speak more directly with some elements that sound a bit like a parable and some elements that don't sound like a parable. They sound a bit more straightforward. Matthew 25, verses 31 and 33, 31 to 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Most people, uh, in my experience, refer to this as the parable of the sheep and the goats, but in actuality, it is neither. It is not really a parable, and it's not really about sheep and goats. Sheep and goats are only mentioned in verses 32 and 33. After that, Jesus simply refers to the nations as those on his right and those on his left. What matters for us is that in the ancient world, those on the right side of the king in this story are in a place of honor. Those on the left side are not. In verses 34 and following, we're no longer hearing about the Son of Man or the shepherd, but the king. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Jesus is talking about something much bigger than sheep and goats. These things, he says, have been in the works since the creation of the world. This scene is cosmic in scope. The king begins by rewarding those on his right. Why? Because they have given him food and drink, they have welcomed him, they have clothed him, they have cared for him, they have visited him. But those standing there on the king's right are confused. Surely, the king has made a mistake. If we had done these things for you, we would remember that. When did we do all of these things for you? In verse 40, the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. 
The least of these refers to their standing in society. It refers to the way the successful and the well-off would view them. In the eyes of the world, these are the people who are of least importance. They don't really matter. In them, the king says, they cared for him. Somehow, even though they didn't know it at the time, the king, Jesus, was present in each of these people in need. But then the king speaks to those nations on his left. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? Because they did the opposite of what those on his right did. Where those on his right cared for people in need, those on his left did not. Verses 44 to 46. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. All these parables that we find in Matthew 24 and to 25 warn of things to come. They are about being faithful while Jesus is away and being prepared whenever Jesus decides to return. However, in this teaching, at the end of chapter 25, Jesus has always been present. He was just incognito. In this teaching, at the end of chapter 25 of Matthew, Jesus has always been present. He was just incognito. He's very much there, but he is unseen, he is unknown at the time. Mother Teresa referred to this reality as Jesus in his most distressing disguise. Jesus in his most distressing disguise. Now, some scholars interpret Jesus as rewarding the nations who took care of his followers, the disciples. That is, Jesus is to be found in his followers, and the nations will be judged on whether they treated us kindly or whether they treated us poorly, because if they treated us poorly, they were treating Jesus poorly. That's one interpretation. Literally, Jesus refers to the least of these as his brothers. And that word brothers occurs 38 times in the Gospel of Matthew. 20 of those times it refers to literal flesh and blood brothers. Half of the rest of these metaphorical uses of the word are generic references to one's neighbors. Anybody. Generic references to one's neighbors. There are differences of opinion among scholars, but I am firmly, firmly in the camp that the least of these refers to any people in need, our neighbors, not just other followers of Jesus. Now, uh, um, humorously, um, that puts me at odds with N.T. Wright, but so be it. I will be at odds with N.T. Wright on this one. In some way, then, Jesus is present in the hungry, in the thirsty, in the stranger, in the naked, in the sick, and in the imprisoned. In some way, to care for them is to care for him. One other issue present in this passage is that it seems to say that we will be saved based on our works, by what we do. If we care for those in need, we enter eternal life. If we do not, we enter eternal punishment. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. It's not saying that. It's saying that we are judged by what we have done, not that we are saved by what we have done. There is a difference. We are judged based on what we have done or not done, not that we are saved based on what we have done or not done. We are saved by the grace of God and our faith in Christ Jesus. 
The works are the evidence of the kind of people we have become. The works are the evidence that we have come to faith in Jesus, that we belong to Christ, that we have been saved. And these works are not works of the Jewish law. That's a different thing. That's the way the Apostle Paul often uses the word for works or deeds. These are works of charity and works of mercy. And they are evidence of the faith of those who are standing on the king's right. It says the book of James chapter 2 teaches us that our our good works in some way complete our faith. As the body, chapter 2 verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Jesus' teaching in Matthew 25 is not intended to be a full-blown theological argument. It's intended to motivate behavior. It's intended to motivate us, the, the calling of people to follow Jesus and to care for those who are in need, and to do so in very practical ways. For in some way, when we do so, we encounter Jesus incognito. As I was engaging in the prayer exercise a few weeks ago, considering the two banners, the two standards, the two armies, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of, of light, I was drawn to Matthew 25 because of a recent powerful experience. When the question was raised as to in what ways I have been deceived by the enemy, I realized that somewhere along the way I stopped seeing Jesus in the least of these. I learned to walk past people on the sidewalks who were begging for spare change. I told myself that it really wasn't helping them to give them a handout. Worse than that, I ignored them. It seemed to me in that moment of prayer that this was worse than all my other sins combined. That's the way I felt. They all seemed quite petty to me when compared to my failure to see, to notice, and to care for the least of these, or simply to take a minute or two and grant them the dignity of looking in their eyes and asking their name. I had fallen prey to the enemy's schemes and lies. I had blamed it on my introversion. Or I had reasoned that it just wasn't good stewardship to give people a handout. You don't know what they're going to do with it. A few weeks ago, I was in uh, Jacksonville, Florida for our annual pastor's conference, the midwinter put on by our denomination. And while there, I encountered, let's just say, more people on the street asking for money than I think I've encountered my whole time living in Lafayette, Indiana. <laughs> Most of them were asking for a few dollars. Every time we went to a restaurant or to get a meal somewhere, we would encounter at least one or two people asking us for something. Early in the week when this would happen, I did what I have most often done. I told them I didn't have any cash or I ignored them or said something like, sorry, not today, can't help you today, kept walking. I was trying to preserve my inner peace, my introversion, and my sense of good stewardship by avoiding the issue until I didn't. My friend Corey and I were out walking late one night when an elderly black man approached us. And I prepared to do exactly what I've always done um, on all these occasions, to find a way not to engage with him or to decline whatever request he might have. Uh, but then something unexpected happened. The man walked straight toward us and right as he got within a few feet of us, he turned and he kind of walked a little veered off a little to, to our right at a distance. And then he faced me and he said, Sir, 
So the reason I'm standing off at a distance right now is so you won't think I've come to harm you. And suddenly, subtly, but something inside of me just kind of went, just disappeared. And I saw this African-American man as wounded, as broken, as the human being that he was. And I walked toward him. And I asked him his name. And I listened to his story. And I found myself, in some ways for the first time, freely and fully enjoying this conversation, engaging with him. And when he finally asked us for money, both Corey and I gave him some cash. But what I realized at the time was more important than the cash. I saw him. I engaged with him. I honored him as a human being worthy of dignity. I saw him as, one, as if he was one who was made in the image of God because he was. He was made in the image of God. Pastors and uh, directors just this past week watched a documentary made by the makers of The Chosen the streaming series on the life of Jesus. And in this documentary, uh, nine or ten Gen Xers, I mean Gen Zers, uh, those born in 1997 on, were invited to come and binge watch the show. They didn't know what it was, and then they just recorded their conversation. And probably the most profound remark for me came from a young woman who was watching one or two episodes and simply said, he's so kind, Jesus is so kind and compassionate. And I'm thinking, if she doesn't know, if they don't know, if others don't know that Jesus is kind and compassionate, that's on us. That's on people like me who walk past those who are in need. This kind of thing happened several more times during the week while I was out walking around. And it was no longer a choice, it was no longer a chore. I just found freedom and joy in making these very small connections with people in need and asking them their name. Even when I didn't have any more cash I could give them, I would just stop, stop and talk to them briefly. My favorite one was, I, I had no cash left. I carry very little cash anyway. But we had gone to a pizza restaurant that night, and we couldn't eat it all. And so Corey said, take this and give it to somebody on the way. So I'm walking along, and this young man says, Do you, could I have a couple of bucks? And I said, I really don't have any. Would you like some pizza? And he goes, uh, sure. And then he says, do you have a light? I said, well, I don't have a light either. But I engaged with him. It was a conversation. And it was actually fun. I actually began to look forward to my next encounter. It was only later, as I was praying through all of this, that I realized that all the while, in some way I cannot fully understand the person I was talking to, the person I was listening to, the person I was seeking to care for was Jesus. In some mysterious way, Jesus was present in the least of these, and I was able to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord for just a few seconds in just such a conversation. And so once again, during this series, we are looking at Psalm 27, verse 4, as a model and as a launching point for what it means to abide in Christ, would you say it together with me? One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple.
If we are going to learn to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, one of the key places that beauty is to be found is in the faces of the least of these. Who are those people in your life and experience? Where are they? Where will you encounter them in the week ahead? How will you, how will you make time to see the beauty of Christ in these people? Last week, I invited you to see one another as sisters and brothers in Christ, as, as God's temple, as the place where God lives by His Spirit, to gaze upon the beauty of one another and to treat one another with the kind of honor and dignity and love and mercy and grace and forgiveness that we owe to Christ and Christ has given us. This week, we look beyond our walls. For Jesus tells us not only that we can see the face of God in one another as sisters and brothers in Christ, but we can see the face of God. We can see the beauty of the Lord in those who are beyond these walls. Those who are the least of these in society or just in our own eyes. Who are the ones God is inviting you to see as if you were looking into the face of Jesus? This day, this week, I invite you to step simply into this invitation to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in the face of others. Start with people you know. Look at them. Love them. Look at them and try to think consciously to yourself, in this person, the beauty of the Lord is present. This person is loved immeasurably by God. Then move a little further out. Look at someone you don't know, maybe someone in the news, someone with whom you have a sharp disagreement, maybe even an enemy of sorts. Or maybe you can find the courage to go for a walk downtown where you might encounter someone in need. Look at them. See them as one of us. Listen to their story. Ask their name. Be present to the work of God in each of them. Carry a few extra dollars on you and plan to give it away. Now some of us, may say, you know, it's not right to give money away when we don't know what they're going to do with it. It's bad stewardship. Well, let me just invite you to consider that every time you and I receive money, however we may get it, it is a gift from God. And whether we steward over it well or steward over it poorly, God does not police us and does not take it away from us when we fail. Just consider that. So I invite you to join with me in prayer. Let's invite God to open our eyes so that we might see Jesus in the least of these. And that he might surprise us with the beauty we see and the impact that beauty can have on us and on those to whom he brings us. Would you pray with me? God, I just ask your forgiveness where we have failed to see you in the lives, in the faces of the least of these. I ask forgiveness, Lord, for where we have failed to see you in the lives and the faces of those who we might consider our enemy, those with whom we disagree, those perhaps who have even harmed us. Lord, would you help us would you open our eyes so that we might better see where you are, that we might better fully encounter you in the world, and that in and through us, God, people might see your compassion, your mercy, your goodness, your love, and that they too might get a glimpse 
of the Jesus we have come to know and love. And may you receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise in his name.